of lie from the empire of lies. An oasis of truth, free speech, and great conversation in the new world order under Joe Biden. This is investigative journalist Lee Stranahan on Carmine Monday. Carmine Sabi will be joining us as guest co-host on The Backstory. How you doing, Rod? I'm doing well, Lee. Can't complain about yourself. How was your, how was your birthday weekend? It was fine. Uh, the girlfriend and I went out for dinner, and it was pretty mellow. You know, when you're my age, 57, you don't get a good party with cake or anything. But they do give you a free cake at the restaurant. But no right. candles. Should have went to Hooters. Because <laughs> I would have set the place on fire. But uh, thanks very, very much. And I really appreciate all my friends on social media for saying happy birthday to me. Meant a lot to me. So we had a great show today. Carmine Monday, Carmine Sabia will be with us. We missed Carmine last week because of the holiday, but he'll be here today. And in the first hour, from the Center for Immigration Studies, Todd Berenson, great guest, friend of the show, and he's going to be talking about Kamala Harris's embarrassing appearance talking about immigration we you know we only have a clip from one of her embarrassing appearances did you happen to see her with lesser holt no i guess i missed that one Lee. you told me she was on yesterday so i looked it up and i found her on lesser holt on uh i believe that's msnbc and that was extra embarrassing she said the immigration situation is getting better what? It was kind of, well, the amount of closeness that she is, is amazing. Well, we have a clip about that, and we're talking to Todd about that, coming up. Then in the second hour, he's running for office in New Jersey. Candidate Darius Mayfield will be with us, right? Yeah, that's right, Lee, and Darius himself has gone to the border uh, three different times, so he's personally done something to Joe Biden. I've heard that Joe Biden's never visited the border, so Darius has done three times the work that Joe Biden's ever done. So Lester Holt also asked her about, when are you going to the border? And she said, well, we've been to the border. Now, notice the royal use of the word we? So Lester Holt said, well, you haven't been to a border. And she said, well, well not me. <laughs> and she said, so what she means by we is other people. And Lester Holt said, you or Joe Biden haven't been there. And she said, why do we have to go to the border? What does it matter? Well, you just said we've been in the border. It was great. Look that one up. Try. Let's get that for tomorrow, because it's shocking. But worth hearing. And we're taking your calls. 202-521-1320. This is the backstory. So I'll get to call her Owl Killer in a second. But you know, I was thinking about something, Rod. Everyone is still underplaying this Biden laptop scandal. Okay? I saw Ted Cruz talking about it in Congress. And he's talking about the laptop scandal is what he's calling election interference. 
And while I think that's true, you can't prove that exactly. Does that make sense? You can't prove that it had an effect on the election. Right, Rod? You can surmise, you can say, uh, right. It's a perception thing, yeah. But what here's here's what we know for sure, because remember I talked about an interview I'd seen on Alex Mercurius's show with John Paul Mac Isaac, the owner of the computer store. I'd forgotten how long the FBI had had it. Now think about this: in 2019, the FBI had a copy of the laptop. 2019, they have a copy. They've looked at it. It's been, they've been told, they, they think, the, John McIsaac said, I think it contains evidence of a crime. Okay? Now, think about what that means. By the time Zuckerberg says the FBI had come to him, it's well into 2020, right? Correct, correct. So what does that mean logically? Well, logically, to me, the FBI was uh, intentionally covering up. They wanted to hide it and make sure it never came out, and they were trying to do their best to cover the tracks of anybody who was uh, going to look into it. Yes, and that actually double lie on the FBI's part. It was a lie that they thought it was Russian disinfo and a lie that they thought if something was coming down the pike, they knew exactly what was coming, Right. 100 percent, Lee, 100 percent. And I don't so, think people like Ted Cruz got a, a handle on this. I mean, he still he still gave praise to Chris Ray um, after you, you remember we played the clip of, uh, uh, you know, the Gatson flag and s- certain symbols like that. After he said all that, he said, well, I don't think, he, you know, this is this is you. I think this is the other people in the FBI. And so he gives uh, Chris Ray some credit still. No, right. But it, I thought about this. By not focusing on the obstruction of justice, the FBI lied to Zuckerberg about where the laptop was from. They knew that wasn't true, and they'd had it for a while, and they did it to cover up evidence of a crime. They didn't want the public to know. Does that make sense? They did not want the public to know. They knew, but they didn't want people to know. Yeah, hundred percent, Lee. Uh, they didn't want us to. They didn't want us talking about it. And uh, that, you know, if if let's say somehow that would have got out, that whole impeachment over Ukraine, which if you ask the average person, they have no right. idea. They have no idea what it was even about. They're just like Ukraine impeachment, Trump. Just three. That's just the three big headlines. And what the impeachment was about, obviously, is they were criticizing Trump for ju- suggesting to Zelensky that Joe Biden may have been involved in criminal activity in Ukraine, and would he continue his investigation? Because they already started an investigation. As it turns out, Donald Trump was right, and the FBI knew it, according to the laptop, right? So they let the impeachment go ahead for Trump because that would have— and I agree, they didn't want him elected, but clearly— They were lying about Joe Biden's. See, here's my point. Forget ideology. Forget whether you like Joe Biden or not. I would feel exactly the same about Trump. If there was evidence that President was getting official kickbacks 
10% to big guy. Kickbacks from his dealings with the foreign nation. Right? I would oppose it. If it, if it was Trump, I'd be dead opposed to it. Right? Would you run? Yeah, of course, Lee. If anything that Trump did is illegal as president or even before as president, that would, you know, harm us as Americans and, and, and whatnot, of course, you know, but, uh, you know, they, they just go with the emoluments clause and he, uh, you know, he, had, he makes ties in China and things like that. That's what they try to put on him. And But we have clear evidence of the most, the definition of corruption, getting money. And he, he lied about it repeatedly throughout the campaign and they used it to make Trump a liar. They brought it up in a mocking way. By bearing the story, they made Trump out to be dishonest. It's not ideology. America is over when an openly corrupt president is allowed to rule. And I read the Rasmussen report, which is a poll, and they're pretty accurate. There's Rasmussen is saying over 50 percent of American people want to see Don, uh, Joe Biden impeached. Over 50 percent want to see him in peace. But the media is not reporting that, right? A hundred percent, Lee. I, I think they're downplaying that number, too. I think it'd probably be closer to 65. You know, a lot of people are, are tired of this, you know. And, you know, once the gas prices start going back up, and uh, I think Mark Frost said he believes they're going to double. So if the if the average now is 330, it's going to be 660. Uh, you know, that's going to that's gonna bring back that anger again. Now, I'll tell you something else I was thinking about. We played... The last thing we played on Friday was a great interview I did with Jareth Kopis, author of Ukraine Forever Upon, about Christina Freeland at NATO. She wants to be in charge of NATO, and she can't be. And we talked about her grandfather, the Nazi. But you know what's interesting? One way I use Twitter is as good is a good way to gauge what the establishment thinks. Because when I see a bunch of people all say the same thing, the last time I saw this was they said, Putin's absurd to say Ukraine's Nazi because Zelensky's Jewish. I saw about 20 people saying that on Twitter. So I knew the bots had been programmed with that line, right? So when you point out Christina Freeland lied about her grandfather, being a Nazi. Do you know what the bots say? You probably see him say it. Uh, that has nothing to do with her, though, right? Right. They say, what? she doesn't pick her grandfather. Now, my first argument is, I'm saying she lied about her Nazi grandfather. That's what I'm saying. So I'm not—her grandfather didn't put her up with that. She chose to lie about it and to call it Russian disinfo. But I thought about it, and this is a very important point. Christina Freeland is not primarily lying about her grandfather being a Nazi. Let me explain. Her main argument is that there is no Nazi history with Ukraine and Bandera. She's a Banderite, and Bandera is not connected to Nazism. Okay, because that's a fundamental belief. Therefore, she can't admit her grandfather was a Nazi because she doesn't admit 
any Nazi background. Does that make sense? Well, that's her ideology, rightly, and that's what's been in, embedded in her to, to, in a way to deflect. What, what did you say? And, and the dangerous part is that there would be a person in charge of NATO who's a denialist about Nazism and Ukraine, not about her father, her grandfather, forgive me, her grandfather, because that's true, but it's not really relevant. She's lying about her grandfather because she lies about all Banderites. They call Bandera a freedom fighter. And there's a great article by someone named Sheldon Kirshner in the Times of Israel. You can find it, do a search for the cult of Stefan Bandera. Just do a search for cult of Bandera and Times of Israel. It's a fantastic article. Goes into detail about you know, the, who Bandera is and about the truth about Ukraine. But what Kirshner was worried about was the cult of Bandera consistently denies their Nazi denialists in general, not about Christina Freeland's grandfather, but about Nazis in general. And, you know, Nazi deniers, I was led to believe. That's an unpopular position. Were you? Yeah, I've, I've been raised as well to <laughs> the same Lee. So, um, but just to, you know, that uh, Freedom Fighters, I saw uh, Kim Iverson had a, a thread going about what happened in uh, in Kursan and saying that there was uh, uh, Americans over there, they're uh, quote unquote uh, Freedom Fighters that are supposedly over there with right. uh, NATO. And And we'll talk more about this stuff that's going on uh, because I, Russia did, I remember I said Friday, I think we could see a stronger move from Russia. And what happened over the weekend, Russia took out power plants. And that was the first time they'd done that. And they did it because they want to stop troops from moving on the electric trains there. So they're still not doing it vindictively. They're doing it as a military move. But still, I start to see some Russian stronger pushback. And I'll talk about an overreaction I'm seeing on a, on a lot of people's parts. But we'll talk about that later. I want to get to the calls. 202-521-1320. The killer of owls. Owl killer is not what he seems. Go ahead, owl killer. What's on your mind? All right, well, I, got, I have... Uh, several points I want to touch on, but first off, the devil Ted Cruz. Remember he rode into uh, Congress on the Ron Paul wave. Oh, I'm a libertarian. I'm a Tea Party guy. And Ron Paul told everybody in 2016, do not vote for this man if, if you're trying to get libertarian val uh, values, if you want a non-interventionist foreign policy. So Ted Cruz talks. He's the smartest guy in the room. He's almost too smart for his own good. I don't trust him as far as I could throw him. Um, the guy looks like uh, Eddie Munster. He'll, he could never be president. But, you know, why Republicans vote for the man? Why? Because he's good on guns? And, oh, he's first. Well, he, he sometimes talks a good game. I agree with you on Ted Cruz. But, and I, I, although I, the Eddie Munster comment was surproof, I'm not going to try to say that word. I give up. But was irrelevant. There, I could do that one. 
But and in all fairness, he looks better with a beard. Would you agree, Al Color? Oh yeah, absolutely. He's a little more Lincoln Lincoln-ish than uh, you know uh, Eddie Munster or Dracula. But um, you know, I, I'll touch on the Zelensky thing. But hey, over the weekend, something came out where there was excerpts of a Steve Bannon interview with Jeffrey Epstein. Fifteen hours. Did you know this existed? What's what's that? There's. Did you know Steve Bannon interviewed on camera? Jeffrey Epstein for 15 hours. There were excerpts that uh, made it to Bandai Video over the weekend. You cannot find the stuff on YouTube, and it never aired. Well, I, I knew that he, he interviewed him. Why is that interview not out? That is, something's not right. Yeah, I, I'd agree. You'd think Bannon would have wanted out. Yeah, definitely. What I Who knows? Maybe that's that's a get-out-of-jail-free thing for him. Um, we'll be talking about Bannon's new Bitcoin venture later. Yeah, We've got a quote. Yeah, of course. You, you notice that uh, Zelensky's obviously doing something with Raytheon, and now you see the greatest counteroffensive since World War II being uh, broadcast all over the uh, mainstream media. Perfect timing for the Raytheon conference that he's going to be heading up. It, you know, th- this is... Almost, it's it's comical. Like you can predict the talking points. There, Putin's going to win. He's going to weaponize winter. He cut the oil off in September this month. So the, the idea that he's weaponizing winter as like to get back for this major counteroffensive. You know, it, it's it's just the, it's really just to sell weapons at at this point. You know, it's it's to try to bleed Russia as much as they can. But it's really just about selling weapons, and that's why. The idea that you're going to have some, a leader of a corrupt foreign country speaking for American uh, arms manufacturer at, at a conference, that should just turn to everybody in America's stomach. Um, I, you know, bringing up the fact that Zelensky's uh, Jewish, but he's clearly allied with Nazis. Did you hear him say that he wanted to make Ukraine big Israel in April? No, no, but I, I heard so I didn't hear the direct quote. Though, what did he say, Al Gore? No, that he looks at um, Ukraine. He wants to model it to be like a big brother, a big Israel, basically because it's a much bigger country than Israel is. I mean, it's if if you look at a map, good luck finding Israel. If if it if it wasn't written out, you wouldn't be able to find it. Um, but no, I just find that that's really uh, that that's a. There was a something came out, I believe, in the Jerusalem Post, and they were talking about making it when it initially came out. Um, it was talking about making bringing Israel to Ukraine and making uh, Ukraine the new state of Israel. But now, because of what's going on, they came back. I think it came out in like 2014, 2015. Um, now, they, the Jerusalem Post I, or the Times of Israel, it's one of the two. Um, said that 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 was satirical, and they didn't mean it. And the, but they didn't edit. If you go back in the Wayback Machine, they didn't edit it until um, a few months ago with this uh, war going on with Russia. Because people went back and looked at the article. Oh wow, this was, you know, what, why would they say something like this? I, I just I find that pretty interesting that Zelensky says that uh, he looks at Ukraine as the big Israel, or as uh, yeah. yeah the big Israel. I, I find that that's a little peculiar to, to me. Yeah, it, it is odd. And Al Killer, we got to go for time reasons, but great call. Thanks for the call. Now, let's go to the first clip, clip we have. I think this shows how our press secretary 
is not in control of the room. Rod, was that the idea behind this first clip? The first one we have is one. Yeah, of no, no, this is. Um, yeah, no, I just wanted uh, to people to see that, you know, Corinne Jean-Pierre is uh, I know her family's from Haiti and I think she might have grew up in France or something like that. But she's she's you know this reporter from Africa is asking or pretty much yelling, why don't you you know give us our respect and allow us to ask questions? And uh, people were here, you can't see it, but she just kind of just rolls her eyes and doesn't want to doesn't want to engage with this woman. Well, yeah, and let's take a listen to that clip. Hit it. One question for Africa, Karine. I'm going to come back, guys. Thank you. Why do we always have to beg for questions? Africans deserve questions as well, Karine. Okay. Come on. What is the latest on communications with Beijing, and are there still efforts to fund a meeting uh, no, no update on his schedule on any meeting at this time. Look, we have said, we've said this many times, that we're keeping the line of communications open with Beijing. Uh, the president spoke uh, with uh, President Xi not too long ago. We read that out. It was more than a two-hour two and 20-minute conversation. Uh, he, that was his, his fifth conversation uh, with the president. And on, on staff levels, there's an open, uh, open dialogue that we're going to keep. Okay, I'll, I'll take I'll take a couple more questions. Okay, I'm gonna take I'm gonna take I'm gonna guys. Because someone was was yelling over you. Someone. And also, by the way, the reporter could have said, I don't answer my question. Take the woman's question. He could have said that, but few reporters are civil. So also, I think this was a this is a little payback because another African reporter or another reporter from Africa asked about uh, the Hunter Biden laptop investigation and DOG and uh, the White House press secretary got upset. So I think this is, you know, since they can't control these reporters from other, other countries, they don't want to take they don't want to take their questions. And other countries knows that's the kind of thing that have happened in their country. It would clearly be a sign of corruption. I think other countries are aware of what's going on in our country, but our press secretary doesn't want to admit it. Let's go 202-521-1320. Our friend Tarif is on the line. Go ahead, Tarif. What's on your mind? Uh, thank you all for um, taking my call. I have three comments. My first comment is this. I can't wait with Larry C. Um, um, Johnson. What's his name? Larry. Johnson, right? Yeah, yeah. The CIA guy come out with his information. Larry Johnson, yeah. Yeah, what you know, what he's gonna, you know, he should be coming out. Because last week I saw him on um, a program, and he was talking about um, Hunter Biden, him and a guy that had Hunter Biden laptop. You know, so hopefully uh, he come up. Yeah, and Larry's got a great new article about Andre Telzenko up on his site, Sonar Twenty One. Look up Larry Johnson. Sonar 21, and you'll see the article about Andrew Chelzenko. So, so good point, Terry. Go ahead. The second comment I have one after this is um, 
Um, of course, Russia stepped up its campaign against um, Ukraine. They knocked out 50% of the energy, of the electrical supply. That means they can't really, uh, uh, Ukraine, Ukraine can't sell the energy to Europe either because they were selling the energy to Europe. And also that's going to stop them from um, having movements around their own country with the troops. Yeah, I think, it was a, I think it was about troop movements primarily. That's what it seems to me. But and it's going to weaken, go ahead. They um, it also is going to weaken the currency that's already had experienced a hyperinflation by reducing the fifty percent the power the power on load. That's going to hurt the um the Havana too. It's going to skyrocket. My last comment is um, I have a YouTube channel where I put videos on every once in a while. It's my my it's called Reefy Zero Zero. That's you know um, it's R E F E E. Zero zero, the two numbers zero zero, and I talk about different topics on their meaning politics, and I have one criticizing the black leadership, basically, you know, telling people what they can approve, but at the same time giving good criticism. And you know, if people want to listen to it, just go to R Reefy zero zero. That's R E F E E zero zero, the two numbers zero zero. That's my um, YouTube channel. Thank y'all for taking my call. Okay, Trief, and good luck with YouTube. Hope you don't get canceled. It's, that's a tricky environment. But coming up, we're talking immigration and our rather embarrassing vice president with Todd Berenson from the Center for Immigration Studies. The name is tough for me sometimes, I'll admit. The Center for Immigration Studies, right after this break, on the backstory. Backstory, and we're on 105.5 FM, AM 1390. Join now from the Center for Immigration Studies, the great Todd Berenson. He's a writer over there. You can find his work at uh, Todd. What, what's the website again? Uh, it's Center for Immigration Studies, CIM.org, or Todd.com. Yeah. Thanks so much. I I forgot CIS. I have no excuse. CIS.org is the main main site for the group. Now, let me ask you a question, because I've got a clip coming up. Todd, ready? This is a softball question. Todd, do we have a crisis at the border? The greatest crisis in American history. We've never had a crisis this voluminous, a mass migration event that looks anything like this. This is just, you know, um, something that is on the order of Ellis Island. Uh, It's on the order of, um, you know, the great arrival of Italians from the 1880s to the 1920s. But the rate is far greater even than than those events. Now, Now, the vice president disagrees with you. We don't have a crisis at the border. And you'll you'll hear that in a second. But how scary is that, that a high government official— and I noticed one thing in watching a lot of the clips. Have you noticed, because you watch this stuff all the time, 
Have you noticed the media is starting to admit that there's a crisis? Have you noticed the mainstream media is admitting they don't go deep into it, but they'll say there's a crisis at the border? Have you noticed they're admitting it's too little and too late? But have you, you noticed what I've noticed, Todd? No, I, I really haven't noticed. Uh, I mean, maybe you're you're following different media than me, but uh, I, I, I kind of feel like the national media, that the main, you know, outlets are just providing cover for, for these officials uh, who are saying this. You know, Alejandro Mayorkas is the secretary of the Department of Homeland Security, our top official for national security. Uh, and he, this, he's been saying the border is secure over and over again for months. And nobody ever presses him on it. They, he just gets away with it. And even in the Chuck Todd interview yesterday of Kamala Harris, I don't know, is it Kamala? Kamala? I never, she said it a couple different ways. But, you know, when she gave that response, he didn't press her. He didn't, he didn't say, what do you mean? The numbers are outrageous and keep going. He switched the subject almost immediately. They don't press on it, but in their intros, did you see the other interview she did with Lester Holt? Did you see that one? No, I missed that one, but I'd like to. What I miss? It's it's worth checking out. So okay. in the intro, he says that there's a crisis at the border. And th- th- then she gives a really funny answer about, he asked her, "Have you are you planning to go to the border soon? And she says, we've been to the border. And you know the phrasing. She doesn't say, I've been to the border. And she says, we've been to the border. We've been to the border. And he says to her, you haven't been to the border. And she says, well, no, I haven't. And neither, he says, neither you nor Joe Biden have been to the border. Oh, okay. And she still somehow says, we've been to the border. It's, it's bizarre. I know which interview you're talking about. Yeah, I, I am aware of that one. Um, since that interview, she has been to the, she has gone to the border, but I would point out that and the president has yet to go to the border. He won't dignify the assertion that there's a massive, historic mass migration crisis happening down there by, by going there, bringing the White House press corps with them and everything else, drawing attention to it. But when she did go there, she went to uh, places on the border that were behind walls and in the interior where there is no uh, my mass migration and evidence, you can't see it, and stayed indoors, went inside facilities and offices away from the border. She did not walk down to the river and watch them pour across. And there were plenty of opportunities for her to do that, but didn't do it. And they're just staying away from those crossings where you're just seeing thousands and thousands a day just pouring in over all night, all day. They won't do that because the cameras follow them wherever they go. They don't want that on on, the, on television. Yeah, so I guess it was an old, old interview, but I saw it was posted in the last 24 hours by someone, and that's sometimes confusing on YouTube, but thanks for clearing that up because... I, I didn't want to get that wrong, but it was such an embarrassing answer. 
uh, I'll point that out. It was. Uh, let's play the clip that we have now. This is her talking to Chuck Todd over the weekend. This weekend, hit it. Would you call the border secure? I think that there is no question that we have to do what the president and I asked Congress to do. Is the first request we made: pass a bill to create a pathway to citizenship. The border is secure, but we also have a broken immigration system, in particular over the last four years before we came in, and it needs to be fixed. We're going to have two million people cross this border for the first time ever. You're confident this border is secure? We have a secure border in that that is a priority for any nation, including ours and our administration. But there are still a lot of problems that we are trying to fix, given the deterioration that happened over the last four years. We also have to put in place a, 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 a law and a plan for a pathway for citizenship for the millions of people who are here and are prepared to do what is legally required to gain citizenship. We don't have that in place because people are playing politics in a state like this and in Congress. On, By the way, you want to talk about bipartisanship on an issue that at one time was a bipartisan issue, both in terms of Republican senators and, and even president. Now, she's right, but not in the way she means. It was once a bipartisan issue, and Democrats were once opposed to illegal immigration. Am I right, Todd? You're absolutely correct. Uh, the two parties have never been that far apart on whether or not to secure the border. And by secure the border, I'm referring to blocking, preventing illegal entry and deporting those who succeed at illegal entry. That, that is the definition of border security in the Secure Fence Act of 2006. It's defined by Congress. But I think what's going on here really is that if, if you remember Bill Clinton, uh, I hate to bring this up, but, but he had this very interesting definition of sexual relations when his scandal with Monica Lewinsky was happening. That's right, yeah. That he used to to kind of describe away the fact that he lied about having relations with that woman. <laughs> and his definition of sexual relations was, he said in his mind, this other crazy thing that nobody else in the world recognizes. Uh, so that he was trying to take away the, his intent of lying. Uh, and I think that's what's going on here. If you were to press these people, Mayorkas, Harris, even Biden has said the border is secure. On what their definition of border security is, it would be the safe, orderly, and humane ushering in of everybody who comes to it, into the country. And that is their definition. And if that's their definition, then in their minds, they're kind of Bill Clinton telling the truth. And I think that that's what, if somebody would just press them, well, what do you mean? What's your definition of border security? That they would say it's the safe, orderly movement of people out of the, off the border and into the country. So in that, if the well, definition, they're in their minds telling the truth. That's why it sounds so crazy to the rest of us, because we all know what border security means. 
Well, and she's saying, she said throughout this crisis, throughout the Biden administration, that they want to look at what's causing people to leave and address the root causes of what's causing the migration, right? But I would say, and maybe I'm sure you can say it better, that the, one of the root causes is the lack of enforcement at the border. The lack of enforcement at the border has meant that the border is like a light to a bug on a hot summer night. It, it draws people. If you, if you made, if you said, okay, in this city, we're declaring car theft is not illegal. We won't arrest anyone for stealing a car. I predict that the number of cars stolen would radically go up. So am I right on that analogy? Yeah, it's a, I mean, really, it's, it's conventional wisdom. I mean, you, you, I mean, you're absolutely correct. Uh, uh, they're correct in a sense that there are root causes, but uh, that are that are a kind of a steady state driver of people to want to leave their countries. They have, you know, poor economies and bad governance, and people don't want to live in their home countries. But those don't explain weekly, monthly, and quarterly and yearly ebbs and retreats of mass numbers of people. The only thing that 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 explains that away are the policies that are selected and implemented and talked about out loud. Uh, I've spent a lot of time with immigrants on the ground. I've interviewed thousands of them about why did you come? What what's how did you tell me your your decision making process here? And it's always well, we heard that they were going to let families in. And then we saw on social media that they were letting families in. So we came and decided to lay our money down for smuggling fees, thousands of dollars. And it's just basic human nature to do that. You know, you, you, if you allow families in and you allow all unaccompanied minors in and you decide to allow all pregnant women, Pregnant women, unaccompanied minors, and families are going to pour over the border, and that's exactly what happened. And uh, we're joined now by our guest co-host, Carmine Sabia. Todd Carmine? Carmine Todd. We're talking immigration, Carmine. Carmine Todd is an interesting name. Wouldn't that be like a really, like a really American last name and a really Italian first name? Uh, okay, yeah, very, very dangerous. How are you, Todd? Good, Hi. Nice to meet you like this. <laughs> Same here, my friend. Same here. Um, yeah, no, I was listening to what you're saying. Listen to what you're saying. You, you got a point. I mean, for I, I was I was laughing this this weekend when Kamala Harris was saying our border is secure. Our border is secure. Our border is not even secure with Taco Bell. Right. And, and she did say that. You you heard her say that. She said the border is secure. Right. Absolutely, yeah. But she said it. The border's secure. It's the policies that are an issue. Well, the policies aren't streaming over the border by the tens of thousands every day. And I'll note that Chuck Todd did push back a little bit. He quietly said, well, there's two million people going on the border. But do you think journalistically, Carmine, it would have been appropriate for the reporter to say, come on, how can you yes. say that? Yes, when they think- lie straight to your face. You try not to do that when you're interviewing somebody. 
you try not to do that. But when they boldface look you in the eyes and lie, and they know you're lying, and they know that you know they're lying, you've got to call them on that. Do you think a little bit of outrage would have been warranted, Todd? Absolutely. Well, yes. Uh, but listen, I've been hearing uh, senior officials of this administration say things like this for a year and a half straight. I, I heard Joe Biden himself say, well, it's cyclical. This is the weather, the weather pattern. <laughs> I've, I've heard my orcas tell Congress under oath the border is secure. Recently, I heard him say it to Brett Baer. But when you, when you start to really pay attention to what they're saying, it becomes clear that in their minds, they've made them think that a secure border is when there's no Del Rio migrant camp under the bridge crisis thing happening or, you know, massive encampments all up and down the border. Uh, what border security is to them is that we're moving everybody in. Bingo. Moving everybody in. That's border security to them. But that's not and Todd, security to anybody else in the world. If the border's wide open and people are coming in, that's pretty secure. Right. And Todd, if, if your policy they, is to keep it open. Right. And they talk a lot about a path of citizenship. My theory, Todd, is that a lot of people here who are here legally do not, in fact, want a path to citizenship. I have a friend who works in the hospitality industry, in the hotel industry, and somebody she works with is from Mexico. And she said they're leaving in October to go back to Mexico because what they do is they work up here and earn enough money, and then they go back to Mexico for a few months, right? And I think that kind of thing— and by the way, this guy is a great guy and a great worker. So I'm not being anything racist or anything like that. I'm saying, but that's what he does. So my opinion is if you said to him, you can be a citizen, he'd be like, why do I want that? My family's back in Mexico. I'll give you, I'll give you an example, Lee. It, well, go ahead. When you're yeah, go ahead, Carmen. Oh, well, I would say my, my, my best friend in high school— and it infuriated my mom because my mom's, you know, America, love it or leave it, right? May she rest in peace. And so my best friend, his family's from Spain. They came here legally, perfectly legal, everything above board. But they saved up and saved up. And when it came time to retire, they went back to Spain. My own father, my own father went back to Italy. You know, so not estranged as, as he is, but my mom used to fight with him. You know, she'd say, you know, because he would complain about America. She'd say, well, then get out. And, of course, he came here legally, but eventually, you know, he went back to Italy, too. And a lot of people, even that come here legally, they, they want to go back home. And to me, yeah, it does infuriate me. It infuriated me my own father. You made your money here, and then you go back there. It doesn't seem right. And we hear a lot about MS-13 and everything. But I had a guy who was Mexican-American I worked with in California, and he talked about how beautiful a lot of Mexico is beautiful and peaceful in the rural parts. You know, you get out in the country and it's a very nice place to live. There's just no money. Right. So if you can come back with a few thousand bucks, you can your family can live for, for the rest of the year. So correct. Todd, they want you to think. And, and Todd, correct me if I'm wrong, please. You're the expert here. But 
it seems like they want you to think that these people are leaving a very dangerous and war-torn, when really it's right. economic migration that's happening. You're absolutely correct. Uh, very few of these people are leaving some sort of imminent danger to their lives uh, or their children. They're coming to claim asylum because you claim asylum, you have this immediate off-ramp, legal off-ramp deportation because the asylum law as it's written is, uh, you know, uh, abusable, eminently abusable. It gets you right into the country if you just say the words, say the magic words. So that's why, you know, you have this narrative out there that these are asylum seekers. I'll put that in air quotes. Uh, they're not asylum seekers. Uh, I would say that probably none of them are legitimate asylum seekers. The vast majority of them that will follow through with an actual claim, and there's a big, long backlog, there's some benefit to doing that because you get to live legally in the country for years while you're waiting, are going to be declared ineligible and declined uh, and deportable, but then they'll be in the country for years by then with kids and family and then... And they won't get deported. And they won't get deported anyway, and that's the game. Uh, but it leads to this false narrative that they are somehow fleeing an imminent bodily harm and persecution by governments, persecution by you know police and everything else. It's not the case. They'll tell you. And of yeah, course, the musical form of this, this is immortalized in song, Gone to November by Wyclef Jean. That song, that's about... Basically, someone moving for part of the year. You know, that's what that song's about. So, Todd, am I right that some people, they don't want to be citizens? They have no desire. They, they're they not anti-American. They're just from Mexico, and they have a pretty nice life there, but they can make more money in, in America. And nothing's going to solve—Kamala Harris is not going to solve that problem. Well, what so— Illegal immigration has changed a lot this time around, this, this cycle. Uh, more than 40% of everybody coming to the border are not from Mexico or Central America. They're from 150 different countries. We've had some recently where the number was as high as 47 48% of everybody reaching the border are not from those countries. They're from you know, India and Nepal and Syria and Iraq and Iran. And I've met every uh, migrant from every nation in Africa, pretty much. I, there might be one or two left I haven't met. They're coming from all over the world because they know they can get in. They're just being let in. So why not? I mean, they're just rational people. So what do they do? They go to they go to Central America and then, then, then come here? Yeah, they— fly into uh, South America, and then if they can fly from South America into Mexico or Central America, they will. But if not, they they uh, pass through what's called the Darien Gap in Colombia to Panama. Then they make their way north. And we've had record-breaking numbers of people crossing through those jungles uh, coming from all over the place. I, I mean, I've been down there. Uh, I've met, you know, people from Mauritania for the first time and Liberia and Sierra Leone and Ghana and Cameroon and Congo. First country, you said? Uh, Liberia? Did I say Liberia? No, Bala, 
Mauritania or uh, something? Oh, hmm. Mauritania. Do you know where that is, Carmine? I I never. This is the first day I've ever heard about it. Okay. Well, they're coming. There's there's the the actual the number of people coming from Mexico are the smallest percentage in the history of the border. So these people are are coming from all over the world. I mean, I count about 150 different countries. Probably met people from 150 different countries down there. And they're coming in here because they want to work, just like, and they know that we're not going to send them home. We're going to let them in. That's what's happening. Now, now, I hope I can explain this in a way that makes sense. But I think this is also hurting the workforce in America very directly in in a way that's not talked about very much. I talked to the guy who used to run Carl's Jr. and Hardy's restaurants. He was up in the Trump administration for Secretary of Labor. And I interviewed him. And he said, the thing is, a lot of these illegal immigrants are good workers. He said he'd rather hire a guy from Mexico than a guy from Southern California. He said they work harder and have less of an attitude. And we've all seen, I think, that a lot of American workers have an attitude. And I think it's been contributed to by the fact that they basically don't have to compete in the job market. Does it make any sense, Todd? Sure. And I've seen that myself. I mean, uh, nobody's arguing that a lot of uh, people who are coming in are working very hard and diligently jobs Americans won't do. The problem is that they entered illegally without permission through a guarded perimeter against the wishes of Congress. We have laws in place to uh, block that, to stop that from happening. And it's the will of the people. You cannot just selectively choose which laws you're going to follow. Um, And these are laws that have been repeatedly upheld, and they're the law of the land. You cannot come in illegally. And and furthermore, you can't work illegally. You you need permission to work in a country. If you come here on vacation, you can come here into the country illegally, but you can't work, right? A work visa is different than entrance, and they violated actually two sets of laws. Right, Todd? A lot of them violate more than two sets of laws because they come in and remember they they need to have a, a social security card to work. Uh, they need right. driver's licenses to, to be able to drive. And those are very often fraudulent, bought on the black market. It's, a, it's, it's a, all based on a series of frauds. And what kind of an impression, first impression, does that leave? On a country anyway, you come into our country illegally, you sneak in, and then you hide and won't leave, and you work and break all these different laws so that you can work. And granted, you're going to work hard and try to stay out of trouble, but like that's the worst possible first impression you can leave on it. I mean, that's that's not what we want. I don't believe we want. There's, now, there's a good argument to be made for expanding maybe the legal process, a legal way for people to come in and work. Uh, But that's up to us, not them. We, citizens, get to decide things like that after debate, discussion. 
in the public. And, and, and Todd, we're almost out of time. So let me ask you this. Do you think cracking down on employers would be a good step that the, the government could take? I never hear people talk about that. Cracking down on the employers. Absolutely. It's part of it's part of the whole fabric of maintaining uh, and enforcing your congressional statutes. That's how you do it. And uh, you, you hit you, you do e-verify. You put in processes that are designed to deter employers from hiring people illegally. But this administration has put all of that in abeyance. And Todd, we're out, out of time, but a fantastic appearance as usual. Great conversation. We'll take a short break now, and we'll be back with Carmine on a Carmine Monday here on The Backstory. show that brings you the truth behind the headlines. We're joined by the great Carmine Sabia on a Carmine Monday as our guest host here on The Backstory. And thanks to our guest in the first hour, Todd Berenson. You can find more of his work, read it at cis.org. Coming up this hour, a candidate from New Jersey, Darius Mayfield. Do you, are you familiar with Darius? I am Carmine? not. I am not. But he's running for, you know, office in New Jersey. And he, let me put it like this. He actually is related to Curtis Mayfield, who did Shaft. Oh. Yeah. Because I, I made a, a Shaft Is he a Democrat? Is, is he a Democrat? That would have been easier to find. But no, he's not. You don't okay. like Darius. Okay. Well, because he's got, if he's not a Democrat, he's got an uphill battle here. Yeah, he, he does. But the fact is, but you'll like talking to him. Rod did a good job, as he does every day, of booking a good guest for you to talk to. I've talked I'm to him before. He's a great guy. Did you, did you miss me for the first half? Yes, we did. In fact, we tried to get you on during the week, but it was you were playing elusive, hard to get, Carmine. No, let me tell you something. You don't even know because I've been so crazy busy at work, dude, for the past ten days. I have where I finally get a day off tomorrow. I have worked fourteen hours a day, ten days in a row. I've worked two hours a day, four <laughs> days in a row. So I don't want to hear you complaining, Val. I'm sorry, man. I'm sorry. Okay, you got now, it rough, bro. recovered enough energy to possibly say the name of the show. I was going to say you didn't answer to do it. Yeah, I'm ready, man. Are you ready? Okay. Are the people Prove ready? It, pal. Prove it. That's for the guy. tens of thousands of the karma maniacs out there. This is the backstory. You sound a little constipated on that one, I'll say. <laughs> My brother. But anyway, crazy stuff. Did you do anything for 9-11, which was yesterday? Yeah, it worked. I, I, yeah, so did it was 9-11 see? again. 
Did, did you go on Twitter for 9-11? Did you see the Twittersphere, as it were? Well, I just, I, I'm on Twitter all the time, so what did you notice, Carmine? I noticed, first of all, if you were born after the year 1998, I don't need to hear your opinion on 9-11. Good point. I don't really need to hear it. I don't. I don't need to hear your your expertise. I don't need to see you wax poetic about justice and all this other nonsense when you weren't here. You didn't live it. You didn't live. I lived right by. I could see those towers fall from my window. So I don't need to hear your opinion if you can't remember it. If you can't tell me exactly from your memory what you remember seeing, smelling, hearing at that moment. I don't need your opinion. And what I see is a lot of young people. The more the younger they get, the dumber they get. Comparing January 6th to 9-11, first of all, which I find. I would find it hilarious if it wasn't so dang disturbing. Um, I saw a lot of that. I saw a lot of you Americans deserved it on Twitter. That was nice. Um. So a lot of, oh, you're imperialist, colonialist, it's all young people, young people who, unfortunately, they've never experienced a Pearl Harbor. They've never experienced a 9-11. It's the same thing with you and I. Well, you might be old enough to remember Pearl Harbor, Lee, but for me. Hey, hey, for hey. Me, <laughs> no, when we were kids, right? we, we knew about Pearl Harbor from the history books, but you didn't know. You didn't know what the people of America felt. You couldn't possibly know what they felt during Pearl Harbor. These kids can't possibly know what we went through. Unfortunately, and the likely scenario is that it will happen, it'll take an attack in their lifetime, some kind of attack on America in their lifetime, for them to actually understand that trauma. And then it'll only be 15 or so years until that's forgotten. They say never forget every year, but people forget more and more, and that's going to be that's going to be a part of history. You saw it with Pearl Harbor, you see it with the Holocaust. People say the words never forget, but then they go on about their day. They do forget. I during nine eleven, even the days leading up to nine eleven, I think about it a lot. I think about that day so much. It, it's seared the pictures, like 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 frozen moments in time seared into the to the very fabric of your mind you remember exactly what you were doing when you realized that it wasn't an accident that's what i'm saying people talk about the yeah. whole day and yeah. worry. it's the very moment when you realized it wasn't an accident that's the moment you remember more than anything and that was of course from the second i have a weird experience because i remember i was in bed at the mgm grand hotel in las vegas that's where i was and it was weird to be in Vegas. But, uh, a lot of women around you? No. Uh, 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 a guy. Uh, I, just got I was there working. Houses, so. I was there teaching the the staff of the MGM Grand how to do video production. And I was watching, I was on the phone with my wife. And we were both watching. You know how you kind of can watch something and be on the phone with someone and Absolutely. it's almost like you're experiencing it together. So you're that was time. my experience. And then the next night, I saw Rick Springfield do a moving 
tribute to 9-11. And I'm not joking. I saw Jesse's girl, and then he talked about 9-11. And it was actually moving. But it was a weird time. Wow. So, so Command Central, you said something to me, and I, and I couldn't hear it. Repeat what you said. Okay. Okay, I misheard then. Forgive me. Okay, thanks. Thanks very much. Okay. Carmine, let's go. I want to get your call real quick, okay? Then I want okay. to ask you something. I'm going to make an analogy with 9-11 and the Queen, believe it or not. Okay. So I'll explain that in a second. 202-521-1320. Ingrid, what's on your mind? Oh, this isn't as quick as last time. Uh, I now have the scoop, and it's coming in by the minute on our Assange event this coming Sunday, the 18th. We are partnering now with Consortium News. This is going to be live streamed so that people can participate in the discussion from anywhere. Um, we've just confirmed uh, Joe Kiriak John Kiriakou and Chip Gibbons will be with Joe Loria on the panel discussing after this film. The film is The War on Journalism, the case of Julian Assange. And you might be interested to know about the tech. It's going to be, Joe's going to film it with his camera. It's going to go on a, on a Zoom that's generated in Australia by Kathy Vogan. Perhaps you worked for her on with yes. the Assange video. Yes. And then yep. she's going to put it on YouTube so that a couple seconds later, people will be there in the chat and can participate in this uh, very serious probe of the allegations against Assange, um, debunking a lot of myths, et cetera. And if this is going to take place in person, if you're in D.C., you can go to the Cleveland Park Library. It'll be between 1.30 and 4 p.m. this coming Sunday. That's great, Ingrid. And there's this another awesome. event coming up in October, a hands-off Assange event in D.C., correct? Yes, and I forgot to say how how you get to this. You can get on our mailing list by writing to DC Action for Assange at gmail dot com. And if you want to go on the direct to the link without doing that, you can go to Consortium News YouTube channel. And this is Ingrid and I were talking about how to do the tech for it. And uh, this is one of the reasons I got to get back to DC. If I were in DC, I just bring this and that. I bring various stuff. I have all stuff to do with those kind of events, but I'm not coming from South Dakota, unfortunately. So I got to get back to D.C. I think maybe around the beginning of the year. But Ingrid, thanks for updating us. Thanks so much. Great call. And now, Carmine, here's what I got for you. Oh, boy. So, no, no, it's a thought experiment because a lot of people— I'm seeing various opinions on Queen Elizabeth. You're seeing that too, right? Twitter's full of opinions. Some people yeah. seem to hate her. A lot of disgusting Almost, things. I, I, I personally, think, I know this would be not popular here on the backstory. I'm a fan of the Queen. I like her. Well, what I've said is I'm not a fan of marketing. But Same here. I really started to understand. So here's my analogy. What if on 9-11, the terrorists had not taken down the World Trade Centers, but had taken down the Statue of Liberty? 
Now imagine that. The Statue of Liberty has no military value, and the number of deaths would have been greatly reduced. There may have been 100 deaths or something. But I would argue that if the Statue of Liberty were taken down, it would have more of a psychological effect on more people than the World Trade Center. You know what? I agree. Right. I I actually agree. And, And I'm saying the Queen is like the Statue of Liberty. For a lot of people, she's just something, the Statue of Liberty is something you think of, you know, for for time immemorial, it's been part of New York skyline. And it would have meant more to your grandparents, probably, than you. Does that make sense? Yeah. And the queen means a lot more to someone's parents or grandparents than to people you know, Spice Girls age, shall we say. Correct. Correct. And I, you know, I understand the whole, we're not down with the monarchy thing. I only have one king. His name is is Jesus. That's my only king. God, Jesus, and the Holy Spirit, the, the Holy Trinity, that's my king. But but to the people who, who live in those countries, I don't judge how they feel about the crown. And if they want it, they'll keep it. And if they don't, they won't. And that's all it's about. That's all it's about, man. It has nothing to do with us. And, and I've not heard anybody who is, you know, saying anything nice about the queen who's defending every action of a monarchy, per se. Well, the idea, but, also, the idea that we have to apologize, the monarchy, a white America, anyway, the, the idea that we have to apologize for things that happened hundreds. In, in 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 the in the case of the of England, thousands of years ago, that people today have to apologize. Lee, here's what I I, I liken that to: if your great great grandfather punched, murdered my great great grandfather, he murdered him in cold blood, tortured and murdered him, it was vicious. Why does Lee Stranahan have to come to Carmine Sabia and apologize? It happened two hundred years ago. We are not involved. We are not the principal. So the idea that the monarchy or anybody else has to apologize for things that happened in history, I find ludicrous and absurd. But they should acknowledge it. And this is one thing I like about, yeah. about, Vladimir, Putin, about Vladimir Putin as a leader. He has never denied what Stalin did. He's never made excuses for it. On the other hand, he's like, that happened. It was bad. Moving well, on. He, he, he never made excuses for who? A Stalin. See, Russia's okay. got some bad stuff in its background, too. Sure, Stalin, be, absolutely. Right. And, and so I think people in America should acknowledge slavery. If you deny uh, well, what, slavery— well, Let me ask you a question. Lee. What else do we have to do to—what what else should we do to acknowledge it? Well, what I, I, think all acknowledged? You do, I think all you have to do is acknowledge it. I think anything beyond that— it's getting into virtue signaling guilt because you you don't really well, but, mean you're going to do anything about it, and that's what, what I'm saying. What, what, I, I like what food. else has to be acknowledged though that wasn't acknowledged is what I'm asking. Well, I don't Have think we anything. not acknowledged it. No, right, and that's that's why. But you know, I, I I like to point out no one's history is perfect, so you should acknowledge it. And if you denied slavery existed. 
I would say you're you're effed up. Does that make sense? But you'd be a right. moron. And, right. That's a good way to put it. But when you get into so, different things, though, about you talk about reparations and things like that, you know, you want me to pay a bill for somebody that died 400 years ago. You know, right. now I do believe in, I do believe you'll be surprised by this thing. I do believe in some form of reparations. It's not a check being sent to people, but I do believe in you know, some form of reparations. You know what? I, I would argue we've paid our reparations already. And I would point out that one of the things that's happened is there are so many economic breaks that have been given to one race and not another. That does a, a form there. of reparations. Do you see my you point? Have a point there. I, my, my, my concern is that the damage done, and I'm talking, forget about slavery, I'm the damage done by redlining is still permeates today. Well, and I don't know so how you want to ring that bell. I don't I'd know. Have to look, you, know, you know what? I'd have to look into that because I so think that's a lying narrative about so many things that it would not surprise me if the redlining thing is a lying narrative. Because but here's the thing. I, I need I need to Here's look the into thing. it I've more. Studied, I've actually studied a lot about redlining. And I would submit to you, and everybody talks about slavery, slavery, the effects of slavery. I would submit to you, slavery is not affecting African Americans today. But redlining definitely still is. Now, I have African American friends of mine who would disagree with me and say that neither is affecting them. And that may be true for those particular people. But as a community, redlining Redlining put in a, a revolving cycle of poverty in which people were relegated to live in certain neighborhoods with lesser teachers and lesser jobs available and lesser opportunities that still permeates today because it becomes self-perpetuating. Now, uh, once, uh, once I'm going to get to in a second. So, Rod, are you there? Rod's done a great job of getting me clips today, but I have so many clips. Rod, are you there? Yeah, I'm here, Lee. Okay, Rod, we're going to play Democracy Always Turns Into Dictatorships. What is this from? Um, I actually don't know. It sounds like it's from, like, the 60s, 70s. It was, all, it was Some woman made a TikTok, and it's just the, uh, the audio in the background. So I just I just grabbed it. I don't know who this person is. I'll try to find who exactly was talking, but yeah, it's I a good— it was, Okay, so, so no context for this, but it's a good quote. So let's listen to this. Hit it. A constitutional republic, not a democracy. The ideal of a democracy is universal equality. The ideal of a constitutional republic is individual liberty. A democracy always degenerates into dictatorship, which promises government-guaranteed equality and security, but it delivers nothing but poverty and serfdom for the people it robs and rules. America was founded as a constitutional republic to safeguard the liberties of the people against the tyranny of democracy or of one-man dictatorship. In this century, great strides have been made toward the goal of subverting our republic into a democracy. The foremost tactic of the subverters is subversion of language. By calling America a democracy until people thoughtlessly accept and use the term, the totalitarians have obscured the real meaning of our principles of government. And I think that's 100% true. What do you think, Harvard? Rod, please send me that on Twitter and in a DM. Oh, my God, I love it. Yeah, great job, Rod. But, but So this argument about democracy 
versus constitutional republic. Have you ever heard Joe Biden brag about having a constitutional republic? There's a reason. Right. There's a reason the Democrats are pushing democracy. And that well, here's the thing, Lee. We're not. We're clearly not a democracy. And we shouldn't be. So 202-521-3020. Brave, you're on. What's on your mind, buddy? Hey, what's going on, guys? Uh, first, let me, let me uh, say real quick, that um, that clip is excellent. Um, I don't know if you guys uh, remember Neil Bortz or heard of I'm sure you, I'm sure you guys have heard of Neil Bortz. He was uh, considered the talk master here in uh, in Georgia as far as uh, conservative talk. Yes. He used to hammer yeah. home, like, daily on his show that, you know, we live in a— um, in a uh, republic, not a de- not a democracy, um, and that was like the f- I remember listening to him back in the day. Like it was like the first time I'd ever even actually heard that. Right, so um, uh, so I, I always uh, I think I think that's a pretty uh, a pretty cool uh, clip. Um, but I, obviously, I'm calling in about the conversation, like the points you guys you're just making concerning like reparations and acknowledging slavery and the queen and all of that stuff. Right, I feel like you guys threw the bat signal off for me. So <laughs> I, <laughs> the phone. I was waiting for you to call, brave. <laughs> <laughs> um, oh, Carmine, I apologize for the last one. I think I bombed your uh, your Twitter, man, with a bunch of like. Uh, you know what? No, I got to get back to you, and I promise I will by tomorrow. Like I've been so crazy busy, bro. But no, no worries. I haven't had time to talk to anybody. No worries at all. I, I just I just leave long messages because I'm rarely on Twitter, so that way I, I you, you know I care. <laughs> but <laughs> Sonny, I'll send you my phone number on Twitter. You can call me with chat. Yeah, that's, that's cool, man. That's cool. That's cool with me. Um, awesome. I, I feel like Chuck Waller all of a sudden. But go ahead, brave. Because <laughs> it's better. It's easier to have uh, like spoken conversation. I, I think, anyways, right? But um, points you guys are making. Um, so something that I, that I that I like to the point I like to make, right, is when we talk about. And there are a few things I would like to address. But I know you guys. I know I don't know how much time we have, but um, I know I don't have but so much time. Um, when, when we make the point about you know my tax dollars paying for something, no matter what what it is that we're talking about, right? I think that one thing that that um, typically doesn't get considered in in making that point or even in that conversation is that you know everybody's paying taxes, everybody's tax dollars are actually going towards that. So whereas uh, you might say, well, I don't feel like my tax dollars should go towards that, right? Um, or pay for that. A better, I think, is a better way of saying it, right? Or a better um, uh, repetition of what you, of what you said, right? Um, my tax dollars are paying for it too. You know what I'm saying? So we're talking about reparations and somebody getting a check and or, or Medicare for all. You know, what I'm saying like my tax dollars that I that I actually pay for actually would be paying for it as well. And then I think another thing to consider is when we. Well, I, I really let me, let me just stop you. I really don't think you should be paying for a brave. And, and, and <laughs> no kidding. <laughs> no, right. You're making the case. I think that you had nothing to do with it. And if if you move here from Jamaica. Let's say you're a Caribbean and you had nothing to do with American slavery in your in your background. I really don't think you should be paying for it either. So so you're actually making a point that that Carmen and I agree with you on, Brave. Well that goes to my and I see I see I see you there, but that goes to my second point. Um when you consider um where our spending is and where our spending goes, and this is not and I and I'm I'm calling in about the uh, reparations points, but I think it applies across the board to some of the things we talked about before. When you talk about or when you consider um the spending that our government does without 
rep, that, that does not represent um, our, our wants and desires, like our, like our military spending, which is really just uh, money to, to their friends and their buddies, right? When we talk about, like, the money that's going to Ukraine, just all those different things where they're spending all of this money all over the place. Like, it's, it's funny because they, they, they love to say, and I'm speaking specifically about, you know, our elite rulers in Washington, right? Whether Democrat or Republican, they love to say that you know we have to we have, how are we going to pay for that when it comes to specific things that would benefit our own society or the working class, right? But that argument never comes up, and this 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 gets beaten to death by many people, right? It never comes up when we're talking about like military spending, and I'm prior military, right? And I'm also prior. But, but I'm seeing it come. And let me excuse me, brave. I'm seeing it come up all the freaking time. People are saying we're spending all this money in Ukraine. And we're not spending it on Jackson, Mississippi. I've seen that a million times. People in power. He means the people in power are not. All right. right. No, right. But and they they never they always excuse. The point is, I think what Karma and I would want is them to say, we're going to pay for this. And here's where the money's going to come from. We're going to cut this. And just say it. Yes. Right. And then. And that leads to my oh, to my to my final point, right? Or, or the point, or continue the point I was just trying to make. That um, one, uh, all this money is being spent. It's not. It's not necessary for us to come out of our pocket for an extra dollar or whatever the point zero 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 percent that we would be contributing towards whatever, right? It's not necessary because all they need to do really is cut back on some of this crap that we never okayed, like we we never voted for, and we continually uh, wish we continually fight. And argue that they should stop spending this money on these things and redirect those funds. So um, I, I think that when it when we're, when the argument arises of you know Medicare for all, and I, and I will I will say just as as a side as an aside that I have consideration I have concerns now because of how they they um, handle COVID that makes me consider the Medicare. Not that I don't think Amen. they have um, medical care, but. The, the way that they COVID should be the COVID should have been the wake up call for everybody that we can't have Medicare for all. So I, I don't yes. I don't think that we can have I don't it's not that I don't think that we should have or could have medical coverage for everyone. I just think that I don't know if I trust them to have control like them paying for it with the money that we contribute or they stolen from us possibly. But I don't like that's a better way to say it. I have concerns about where it would take uh, control of it too because. If they, because like we saw like in Germany and places like that and in Australia, like who have those social safety nets, which I think we do need, but at the same time, it allowed them to take power over the people and force them to do it, which they kind of did to us anyways, but not to that extent. So that is a concern that I have. But my ultimate point is that, um, no, reparations are old, right? Reparations are definitely old. And I made this point before. And it's, and as a black man, I, I will, I'm happy to say, obviously, I, I believe in reparations, but I believe they also owe reparations to the working class of um, of Americans because they sold us out so long ago, like NAFTA and all of those. That's true. They destroyed our economy. They owe us. So I constantly say that. And I don't think it's oh, like you know, Carmine owes me. No, our what, what, that's that. But that's what it means when you say they, the government. Where does the government get its money from? But Carmine the government has no money. They get it from us. So let me let, let me ask you this question. Consider this. I have a better question, though. What is it for the black community, Brave? What does reparations look like to you? Because to me, it doesn't look like an individual check. It looks like programs, real programs, not BS programs, real programs that can start to unring the bell of what I believe. And, and you tell me what you think. What I believe is the biggest cause of strife for the black community today 
which is the damage done by redlining that is still being done. Right, well, that, yes, that's, that, that, you raise a good point there, but it wouldn't stop at redlining. Because I mean, people talk about slavery. Yes, redlining. I give. I, I definitely give you credit for bringing that up. Well, obviously, right. But it, we're we're almost out of time, brave for the half hour. So I got to go. But great call as usual. And let me say this: I think what reparations has done is made generations of black people waiting for the lottery. They're waiting for the reparations check to hit, and they think yes. they're owed it. Stop saying what you're owed. You're not owed a goddamn thing. You're not owed anything for slavery. You are owed nothing. You are not one dime. The reparations check is never coming. And I'm also, that's my point. And also, you're not going to get it. It's being held in front of you as bait. So, but, but, and if you have the idea. I know we're out of time, but my argument is that something has to be done to fix please look up redlining and the damage done by it It, 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 when you see it it's going to make you furious well i've seen that but uh again i'd have to do more research if i I looked up articles of redlining i believe that they would all be mainstream media articles and i don't trust them so and uh (laughs) look up documentaries better no so joining us now after this short break is Darius Mayfield and you're gonna like this Carmine let's take a short break on what show the backstore on the back story and on 105.5 FM AM 1390. Joining us now from New Jersey, Darius Mayfield. Hey Darius, how you doing? I'm doing good, brother, and yourself? I'm good. Meet Carmine Sabia. He's also from New Jersey and he's our My guest co-host today. Darius Carmine, Carmine Darius. How are you, my man? Hi, I'm doing well, I'm doing well, man. Thanks for having me on today, guys. Where in, uh, where in Jersey so, are you from, man? I'm originally from New Brunswick, New Jersey. So you're not familiar with, like, Dickie D's and Calandra's and all that? Oh, that doesn't sound familiar, actually. <laughs> That's Newark. That's Newark, man. Newark, New Jersey? Yes, I used to live in That's, New Jersey. You lived in Newark, but I'm from Newark. Okay, so you don't know Dickie D's hot dogs or JJ's or Tony's? Nah, I was young. I was, I went to middle school out there at Vellsburg Middle School. I lived over there on uh, Weston Avenue off of South Orange Avenue. So have you never, Darius, have you never experienced the sheer pleasure and delight of an Italian hot dog? Uh, I don't think so, brother. <laughs> well, then I am going to have to, I'm going to follow you right now on Twitter, and I'm going to have to send you, I'm going to teach you how to cook this, and your life will never be the same. Oh, man, I love it. <laughs> I love it. <laughs> now, so, so yeah, no, uh, Darius, do me a favor. Introduce yourself and say what you're running for and give a short statement of your principles to Carmine. Like he's voter. Yeah, so I'm Darius Mayfield, uh, running for Congress in New Jersey's 12th Congressional District against Maxine Waters' best friend, Miss Bonnie Watson Coleman. Uh, my motto is not black, not white American. Uh, I do believe that it's time for us to start acting that way because we have a lot of problems going on in and outside of this country. So it's really time for us to start coming together here in this country and understanding that we are all Americans at the end of the day. 
may not agree on everything, but I think we can all agree on that we want life, liberty, the pursuit of happiness. And we may not always agree on everything, but I think we all uh, agree on those basic principles and may just have different ways of getting there sometimes. So I just want us to start focusing on more of what binds us and brings us together rather than what divides us. And it's time for us to put these career crooked, in a lot of cases, politicians in check and let them know that this is the people's country and the people's House of Representatives and not theirs. So uh, I'm all about that. I'm all about speaking truth to power, uh, making sure we return the power back into the hands of our citizens, our parents, our students, uh, and people of that sort, rather than watching these corporations, these pharmaceutical companies, and career corrupt politicians uh, pretty much reign over us carte blanche. Uh, it's time for that to end, and it's time for America first candidates to step up and really start showing the strength that this country is known for and putting our country back in order. Carmen, does you have your vote? Absolutely. In New Jersey, that's a, that's a tough one. In New Jersey, that's very tough. But we are. We- are you finding... Yeah, go go ahead, Jarvis. No, I was telling him we are tough in New Jersey, so it is what it is, man. But I can tell you this, New Jersey is ready. New Jersey is energized. A lot of people don't realize that last year we flipped over 100 uh, Democratic seats here in New Jersey throughout our local and state elections from school, city councils to a lot of different things. And I was just actually at Jack Cittarelli's house, the uh, Republican gubernatorial candidate, uh, just two days ago. He had a kickoff event in Hillsborough out there. And I tell you what, you know, if it wasn't for Republicans in this state, I'll be honest with you, he would be governor right now because one out of two Republicans didn't come out and vote. So right now we're, we're focusing on voter participation, knocking on doors, and making sure we get those Republicans out to the poll this year so we can continue this wave. And uh, Amen. We were, we're very, you know what, you're right. If, if Republicans didn't say it's impossible, we might have won this, this gubernatorial election. Oh, we, we, it wasn't a might. We absolutely 1,000% would have. He only lost by about 70,000 uh, votes, and you had hundreds of thousands of Republicans that didn't vote. And I said it in my speech the other day at his house. There was a lot of even black Democrats in places like Trenton, New Jersey, that actually voted for Jack Chitterelli. And they came up to me and told me they this was the first election that they were a one-issue voter, and a lot of it had to do with covid and the different COVID measures uh, Phil Murphy was handing down. And a lot of black Democrats, even in Trenton, New Jersey, actually voted for Jack Cittarelli. So we really can't. We have to put a lot of that on the Republicans here. And that's why we're focusing on making sure we up voter participation and bring them out this November. Now, Darius, before you came on, we were actually talking about a very interesting issue, that uh, reparations for black Americans. And uh, the point I was trying to make, and I'm not sure I made that well, Carmine, is it's very frustrating to me. I think black voters, what do you think about this, Darius? Have been taken advantage of. It's a con game. Democrats have held out the possibility of getting a reparations check. And so people picture if I vote for Democrats, I might get a big check. And then that makes them, I would say, lazier than they would be. Because if you thought you were, you might win the lottery, you're not going to work as hard. Now, Darius, what do you think about reparations? Well, I will tell you, I probably come from a little bit of the other side. A lot of people, especially in New Jersey, um, know who I am and where I fall on issues like this. So I'll be honest with you. When it comes to reparations, um, it is something that I've thought long about. Um, it is something, something that I support of sorts, but in the way I support it is – not necessarily just cutting a blank check and, you know, uh, putting that tax burden on the American people. I more so look at it 
economic uh, equality, um, investment into certain communities, kind of like what Donald Trump was going to do. That was a form of reparations when he introduced the $500 billion platinum plan, which unfortunately, you know, for those same black Democrats that are hoping for Democrat, uh, those same black people that are hoping on Democrats to uh, pass something like this, they actually had that in the palm of their hands with somebody like Donald Trump that was willing to invest hundreds of billions of dollars into economic investment um, and different things within those communities to make sure they got equality and had a fair shot. We spend over a trillion dollars a year um, on just welfare services in this country. And I know that whole trillion dollar isn't just black people, but a large chunk of it is. So my plan for, I guess, what we can call reparations of sort is to ultimately eliminate uh, some of those uh, welfare benefits and things like that for this population and introduce things like Donald Trump wanted to introduce, like uh, bonds for ec economic investment, opportunity zones, fixing our schools, creating school choice. So I do believe in a form of reparations. Um, we do understand that. You know, there's a, there's a long history in this country between black and white people and what has happened. Now, I do not think anybody that is alive today is responsible for what happened back then, but we do have examples of this country specifically, whether it was the Japanese uh, during Pearl Harbor uh, and things of that sort, uh, the Jewish population, the Native American population in this uh, actual country. So we do have examples of it. So I think I do come from a little bit of side of that, but we want to do it the right way. No, 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 Darius, I, I think Carmine agrees with you, actually. Darius Carmine, and I are on the same page, which should be. And I would I would wonder, Darius, if you agree with me that I think so much is talked about slavery, 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 but the damage that is still being effect, uh, felt today is not from slavery. I believe that the damage being felt today, the bigger culprit, not saying slavery has no part, but the bigger culprit, the much bigger culprit, in my opinion, is redlining and what redlining did and still does. Absolutely. Absolutely. I think that's part of it. I mean, obviously you have the Jim Crow era as well. I think, I think you're right. When it comes to slavery, I don't think uh, per se it's the most potent thing that's affecting people. But I will say because that the black population decided to go along with a party like the Democrats, they've kind of been propagated in a way and never really had the issues seriously dealt with. So that's why I'm a Republican values, because, you know, Republicans are all about dependence, um, growth, living the American dream, going out there and getting and working hard for it. You know, where Democrats, they just kind of gave handouts here and there and never really dealt with the underlying issues, like you said, whether it's redlining, uh, whether it's income distribution, whether it's having good jobs in these areas. You know, we let China take over 70,000 of our factories um, after we signed NAFTA into law. So I think they never really did a good job of dealing with the mental side um, of things, which is really just kind of driven some of these communities uh, into violent cesspools filled with failing schools, filled with drugs, uh, filled with a lot of things rather than, again, addressing the root cause and making sure these people um, had a way to really believe that they could obtain the American dream. Instead, nowadays, all you hear is people on MSNBC, CNN, telling young black and brown kids why they can't do something, why the white man's going to come and stop Amen. them to progress in their lives and do things like this. So they literally— They're a victim. First approach. Yes, exactly. Now, now let me ask both of you, then. I'll tell you what my objection— what you're saying is it's not the theory the, the theory behind what you're saying i know but I, I i mean this democrats will figure out a way for them and their cronies 
to make money off it and not to help people. Every time a program like this comes up, no matter how well-intentioned Republicans are, Democrats will find a way to work on to work it to their and their corporate friends' advantage. So what would you do? You you because you can't you can't tell me how you would guaranteed put a stop to that. I believe you wouldn't do it, Darius. I believe you wouldn't do it, Carmine. I believe you wouldn't try to figure out how some of the middlemen can make money. But some Democrat in the process would go, hey, we'll make money if we form this corporation or nonprofit or something like that. Does that make sense, guys? That does concern me. Yeah, it makes complete sense, man. And I'll, I'll, I'll answer your question directly. I think the way we stop that and present that, prevent that is to have somebody like myself or a Republican actually uh, draw something like this up and actually introduce legislation like this to be had, because then we can put safeguards in place and show people going forward the right way to put legislation up without having uh, all the pet projects and, as you said, you know, politicians making money for them and their friends at the end of the day. So, you know, it reminds me of the infrastructure bill. Thank God we have a Republican, um, Republicans in the Senate and the Congress, because especially the Senate, because, you know, that went from, what, a couple of trillion dollars um, bill to under a trillion dollars. So Republicans are usually the ones whittling down things to make sure, you know, we're not just out there spending, spending, spending. So I think if it comes from the right place, this is something that, uh, you know, Republicans get behind and craft it the right way. We, I definitely think we could put the safeguards in there to make sure the money gets directly to where it's supposed to go. And that will also be a selling point of a bill like that, because everybody understands right now, even in those communities, part of the reason why they're in the situation they're in is because their politicians are so corrupt and the money's not going to where it's supposed to go. You know, whether it's the teachers union in New Jersey uh, robbing the teachers and robbing the students and making politicians do things that go against their own interests right there in that community. So people understand these things. So if we sell something like this the right way and are open and honest with our conversation of what we're looking to get done and how we're going to safeguard those things, I definitely think we can get it done the right way. Well, because a few years ago, when I was covering the paper black farmer scandal, it occurred to me one form of reparations, historically, 40 acres in a mule, the United States did not do. And I'd be in favor of a modern version of 40 acres in a mule, where, for instance, if uh, black people could get land, because owning land makes a significant difference. It's not the same as a check, but I realized that the Democrats would immediately figure out how to just take some guy who's black and, let's say, doesn't want to own land and say, hey, I'll buy those 40 acres from you. Here's $100. And, and a lot of people, people would get richer. That's all that happened. Right. And that's what happened in Russia when they were getting rid of the assets. And, you know, I, I'm it's I think you have to get rid of Democrats in power and you're on to something, Darius. Any comments on that? Yeah, you know, um, I definitely uh, agree with you there. And, you know, I'm glad you brought up the whole 40 acres and a mule because that is a very serious thing and uh, one that the black community is very cognizant about um, when it comes to this issue. And, you know, I, I, I do think we can get it done the right way. I think this can be uh, uh, quite a uh, transformational issue for Republicans 
um, if this was done the right way. You know, right now you have Joe Biden at under 60 percent approval with African Americans. You have him at 19 percent approval with Hispanics. So like I tell Republicans all the time, the people are telling you that they understand, they see what's going on, they're tired of what's going on, and they're willing to give us a chance if we can show the right empathy and stay level-headed in our approach. So I agree with you when it comes to those things, and I know uh, there are some real concerns. But again, even the way I'm looking at this is not to make this an extra burden or a tax on the American people. You know, we already spend billions, uh, a little bit over a trillion dollars a year on the same actual issue. So really, we would be shifting some of those funds to do things like you said, buying land. And it's funny that you said that because people like Kanye West, that's exactly what he's been talking about the last couple of years. That's why he bought all that property in Wyoming. He's been buying property all over California, and he's actually building schools. He started his own college now. You know, he's building schools, things of that sort. So I think you're absolutely right. It doesn't necessarily have to always be uh, monetary, which, you know, can definitely be a mix of it. But I think land, I think programs, schooling, community uh, centers, things like that, where we can actually start affecting the consciousness of the people in these communities and not necessarily the people that are there right now. This is more so for a lot of those people that aren't even born yet, because we have to start changing the consciousness of those kids that aren't born, that are being born into these situations, to let them know and make them understand that there is a better way, and they do have opportunity in front of them if they go a specific way. So um, I agree with you. And I talked to black farmers, and they told me one of the things I liked about it was the lifestyle, because you're truly independent. Think about it. If you have a small farm, and you you can grow enough food for your family. You don't need anybody. Period. You don't need anybody. Does that make sense? Yeah, it absolutely does. And it's funny you say that because a lot of black rappers and a lot of black entertainers right now are actually buying properties big enough to start their own farms on their property. Rick Ross, I was just reading about that the other day. And they were actually, some of the other people were making fun of him because he's doing that. But some people are waking up and understanding exactly what you just said. And those same people that are laughing don't understand one thing. 50, 60 years ago in this country, there were over 1 million black farmers in this country. Right now, in 2022, there's less than 5,000. So there's a big, big problem, a big disconnect. This, my community specifically has gone backwards in so many different directions that uh, it's time to start kind of waking up and becoming more conscious about this stuff so we can see some real tangible change. And, and let me say, you might not be able to tell from looking at me. But I am down and have been down from day one. So I'm going to say something. Part of what happens here is a dangerous thing with the younger generation. You talk with people laughing at that. And Darius, am I correct about this? A lot of people, they're 1920 and they grew up, you know, in a rural area. They want to get out of there and get to the cities because when you you're black and you describe someone as country, right? That's an insult. Is that an insult, right? Yeah, I mean, especially up here when they come to the uh, Northeast. Yeah, there's a sentiment among communities where that's deemed uh, not cool. You know, that's what that's where our neighborhoods have been driven to. You know, right now we praise things and think things are cool that are actually detrimental uh, to our communities, to our psyche, you know, to everything. And we literally look down on or laugh at those things that would actually bring us uh, the sustainable growth and progress that we're actually looking for. So you're absolutely right. I know that's a 
microcosm of a, an example there, but it's the perfect example because that's exactly how people look at him. You come from down south, they think you talk funny. It reminds me when I was a little kid. You know, we used to have, like, Africans started immigrating over here, and right in the, in the black community, and Africans would tell you this all the time, they would get made fun of by black Americans, you know, because of the way they spoke, yes. because of the war, things like that. So, yes, it's a mental thing, and I think, just so you know, some of that is derived from uh, the 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 resin of, I won't say necessarily slavery, but things like Jim Crow, you know, things like discrimination some of these people have uh, experienced without really uh, Democrats ever really finding a solution to deal with that because they don't even understand that own their own self-hate sometimes. They don't understand those things inside of themselves because we've been conditioned to be that way for generation after generation without really ever dealing with the root of the problem. So you have a lot of people in these communities that are walking around with PTSD all the time and not really understanding it and just deeming things that are, again, uh, directly negatively affecting them as cool and those things that could actually help them as uncool and things they don't want to participate in. And a lot of these older black farmers, they were, it hurt their heart to see their grandchildren not fundamentally respect them because these were people who grew up in the 50s, right? So they've been called legit the N-word and not in a hip-hop song. And they've grown up and they get up at five in the morning to take care of the farm. And they get no respect from their own grandkids. Their grandkids don't want to be like them. They want to be like, you know, Snoop, whoever. Yeah. Well, Does that make sense? Oh, it, it, no, it makes complete sense. And, and that's why I, you know, laugh at some of these kids nowadays, especially when I hear, you know, black ones saying it that, you know, calling white people privileged all the time, right? Because nowadays, in 2022, most of these kids are actually privileged. They're privileged just to be born in this country. You know, the, the United States of America, the greatest country to ever gra grace the face of the earth. And they just don't understand that because they are so privileged at the end of the day. So, yes, that's heartbreaking. That's sad to hear, and it's no wonder, you know, why we so easily went from over a million farmers in these countries, uh, one of the oldest yes. In this country, yeah. one of the most uh, honorable professions in this country, to less than five hundred of the psyche of kids like that, and not understanding the sacrifice that their grandparents, their aunts, their uncles made for us to be as privileged as we are today. And we, we, I know we have some, uh, Darius, you, you don't know this, but we actually have uh, some people with Nation of Islam who listen and like this show. Nation of Islam, I will say, what everything about them. Nation Islam has been great on this issue. They because they're for people being independent. So a shout out because I know we have some listeners from NOI. So Darius, now let me ask you, what have you found to be the mood of the voters? Have you found anything that you think you can tell us about what's gonna happen in the midterms running for office? Well, you know, as you know, um, I'm, I'm fairly new to this political scene, but um, I like to think that I'm a very intuitive guy. And obviously, I was somewhat intuitive by uh, being the first person in New Jersey to announce my candidacy for Congress last year in late February. Um, and it's been up since then. It's been nothing but positive experiences. This is what I can tell you. Um, and this is the God's honest truth. It doesn't matter if they're a Democrat, Republican, or an unaffiliated 
99.9% of the people that I've talked to, and, and mind you, in the last year, I've knocked on over 14,000 doors just here in my district. 99.9% of the people I talk to are furious and livid with the direction that this country is going in, and they understand and relate it all to this administration that resides in the White House right now. That is independents, that is Republicans, and Democrats. You know, whether they're black, brown, or white, at the end of the day, every single person nearly that I've talked to is not happy with what's going on. So they're ready for real unity. They're ready for real change. And I think they understand, kind of like I did, because you know this, you know, in 2016 was the first time I ever voted in my life, and that's when President Trump first ran. And biggest reason I voted for him is because he was speaking to those kitchen issue tables that we all speak about. Even though a lot of black and brown people won't admit it now, we were all talking about illegal immigration because it was affecting those neighborhoods the most back then. For decades now, we were always talking about a peace through strength policy and, you know, uh, relating the fact that although we love how strong somebody like George Bush was, he really made uh, a terrible mistake going into Iraq, you know, the way they did, and it was for the wrong reasons at the end of the day, as we found out later. So people are conscious and they understand what's going on. They've just been waiting for politicians to kind of match that same energy and be regular in their approach and be authentically uniting uh, in their approach and understanding their issues at the end of the day. So what I can tell you and what my personal belief is, is that Republicans are going to make huge gains in the midterms. As long as, as long as people don't put their foot in their mouths and something crazy comes out, we're going to make huge gains. I'm talking about picking up dozens of seats uh, in the House of Representatives. As far as the Senate's concerned, um, that's going to be a little bit tougher. Um, if we could pick up, you know, one or two seats and not not lose any more, at least we can kind of stop that agenda there. But I think in the House of Representatives, people are going to really show out and show this administration how unhappy they are with them and really give Republicans, especially America First Republicans, a chance to show them that we can govern the way they like us to. You'll get the reference. Darius, have you ever considered, as a campaign's move, going out and twerking on the beach upside down? <laughs> I mean, I don't think, uh, you know, I'm not—I might be black, but I don't got the biggest butt, so <laughs> I probably wouldn't be the right one to twerk. You, you've seen the video of the woman from Rhode Island, right? You've seen the candidate who did that. Yeah, and I also seen the video of the Democratic uh, Senate candidate talking about bringing a, a gang member over into her campaign and cleaning them up. Democrats have lost their collective minds. You know, we saw Nancy right. over with a hat top on. So we don't know what they're doing right now. They have absolutely lost their minds. But yes, I did see Wait, that. Wait, Darius, a few years ago, I don't know if you remember, when Nancy Pelosi said they celebrate Kwanzaa in her house. Uh, and, oh, showed up in the star. Way, Nancy Pelosi twerking. Is not an image you want oh, to God, think about. Go ahead. <laughs> yeah, I, I do remember that. But those, see, those are some of the things. This has been a collective road. This didn't just start, you know, with Donald Trump, um, especially when it comes to the black community. I'll be honest with you. A lot of it started under the Obama administration because once he was gone, people understood, especially in the black community, even though it's not uh, talked about that much in public, that, you know, he did very little. Uh, for the black community. He did a lot of things for the LGBT community, and black people talk about that all the time. And they actually relate some of what Obama did to us being in the situation we are now when it comes to this Here's, curriculum. Let me interrupt you, only because I, we have enough time. Where can people find more about your candidacy? Yeah, you guys can go to my website at www.dariusmayfieldforamerica.com, and that's 4-F-O-R. And Darius, absolutely great appearance. Carmine, you like Darius? 
Love him. Love him. We need more candidates like him. Yes. So great appearance by Darius. Great job co-hosting by Carmine. And great appearance by Todd Berenson from CIS.org. And we'll be back tomorrow. And thanks to all the callers, including Brave, Tarif, and Owl Killer on the backstory. Uh-huh.